We're in Genesis chapter 19 this morning, or this evening. I'm not going to try to read the whole text, uh, uh, just because it takes a while to get through some of these larger passages of Scripture, but we'll dig through it here. So let's pray and then look into the Word together. Father, thank you for a chance to gather midweek. Um, we, we know that you're with us, uh, uh, not when we're just here, but you never leave us nor forsake us. But it is uh, glorious to gather, to sing songs, to be led in worship, uh, to lift our voices to you, and then to turn our attention uh, squarely to your word, to know you better. We thank you that you have left us uh, a document, the Bible, God's word that is sufficient for everything we need, Lord. Uh, there's everything we need to know about you, everything we need to know about man and sin and redemption, the truths we hold so dearly. So we pray that you would bring those truths out to us tonight, that we would learn from your word, Lord, and we would walk with you in a way that brings you glory, Lord. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for each and every one who's here. It's encouraging to see him here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we... <laughs> I want to go a lot faster through this, but, uh, but as we make our way to the cross, we're creation of Christ. It's an overview here of the scriptures, we find ourselves in some passages that are a little more darker. <laughs> uh, in fact, when you read the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament, you spend much time in it, it is dark at times. There's a tremendous amount of sin and ugliness in it. And so often, if you've ever witnessed with somebody and they take this on, they'll often look, well, whoa, what about those people in the Old Testament and God and all the killing and this and that, and there's some stuff in this text that, you know, it's got a rated R, you know, label on it. And what a reminder. And that we always, and those of us that, that love to use that, we say, look, the Bible is a clear picture of man as much as it is of God. And the Bible shows you how dark and how wicked man can be. And yet in the midst of all of that, ugh, <laughs> there's God holding a redemptive plan. And so we will be reminded of that as we look through a very, very dark and sad, in some ways, passage. So Genesis 19, as you know, details the record of the godless and sinful demise of Sodom and Gomorrah. This term is used in our culture, right? You'll hear, and even in a, uh, an unsaved culture, they'll use this term. It is so well known. It also takes on a few other cities in the plain there. The chapter also details the desperate and, and boy, it's hard not to say this, the sinful life of Lot and his family. The location of these cities, um, except for Zoar, has never been found. They have looked for them. They think they know where Zoar is. Uh, it's east of the Dead Sea, they believe, but they're not sure. There is nothing, nothing left of these cities. God thoroughly wiped them from the face of the earth. The study of Lot and his family is truly a study of human behavior, human tragedy. <laughs> We see consequence upon consequence what happens in this text. And almost everyone in the text dies. Almost everyone, except three people. We're talking possibly hundreds, if not a thousand people in some of these cities at this time. And let alone all of Lot's family. And remember, Abraham, I think we said this last week, Abraham had 314, I think it is, uh, 
men that he assembled to go into war in chapter 14 to go get Lot back. And certainly his family was probably larger than Lot's, but Lot was no shake in the wheat. There's doubtlessly many, many of his family in these cities. Lot's family becomes immersed into the lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's not hard to see that as you begin to unfold the text. Lot himself is saved by angels. He's taken by the hand, as we'll see. And he's, and he's brought out of the city. And yet, in the end, he loses his wife. He loses his sons, his future son-in-laws. He loses almost everything. And in fact, in this passage is the last mention of him as a person until you get to the New Testament. The story ends with incest in the creation of two enemy nations. It's, I told you it's dark. <laughs> but we don't skip passages here, right? We want to know what God's word has to say and why it's in there. And so the consequences of sin are like a ripple with a rock thrown in there. And when we study consequences of sin, and, and this is hard because this may hit people differently. Consequences of sin will weigh, roll up like waves on shores you never expected them to roll up on. That's what sin does. Sin is torturous to man. And pretty soon this family is pretty much just wiped out. But in this ash heap, in this ash heap, will come a redemptive plan that's protected. A protected, redemptive plan of God that is outstanding and amazing as, you, as we'll unearth this towards the end. First of all, let's look at God is powerful and he hates sin. I think we, we, when we study the Bible, we always learn the character of God. We always see his character. We always begin to understand what he loves and what he hates. J.C. Ryle said a definition of holiness is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And when we study God, we begin clearly in the scriptures to understand what he loves and what he hates. Now, hate is a strong word in our society today, isn't it? It's almost a word you're not allowed to use. But God does hate sin. And he's clear on that throughout the scriptures. Now, though God was gracious with Abraham, it, the angels were still sent to go to do their job. Remember last week we looked at chapter 18 and God allows the Lord, probably the pre-incarnate Christ here, the angel of the Lord, allows Abraham to engage in this conversation with him. Lord, if there's 50, will you not destroy everyone? It's great, Lord. Uh, by the way, you two guys get going and do your job I have for you. <laughs> what else you got? How about 45? 45. If there's 45, and he allows him into this conversation with him, but he knows because he's the Lord. He's, he's Yahweh. He's, he's there with all his omniscience of what's going to happen. So notice verse 1 of chapter 19. And remember, in the last text, it called them three men, and then one is singled out as omniscience, which we know is probably a pre-incarnate Christ, a theophany there. But here we come to two angels. Now they're not called two men now, they're called two angels, who we discovered that that's probably what they were in the last text. And notice these two angels come to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting down at the gate. Now, 
Um, angels are a whole nother study, and one of these days we'll work through angelology. Uh, what a great class to take. But look with me at Psalm uh, chapter 103. I just want to show you a couple of verses because these two angels are doing exactly what they're told to do. And they will do nothing but that. These are elect angels. These are angels not of the fall. They're angels sent by God to accomplish a work that he has for them to do. Look with me all the way down to Psalms uh, 103 verse 19. It starts with a great statement of sovereignty of the Lord. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Notice what the writer does now. Bless the Lord, you his angels. That's what they do, right? Holy, holy is the Lord. We see this in Isaiah. This is what they do. They worship mighty in strength. Now look at this. Who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Angels are a really good example for us, aren't they? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you have children like this? <laughs> God says, do this. Boom, off they go. They're doing what God tells them to do. They're always obeying the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. So in 18, Genesis 18, we have this discussion going on with this theophany. There, um, he has this discussion, but these angels are off to go do what God has told them to do. And there's no discussion when they get there in chapter 19. You get your family, you get out of here, we're going to destroy this place. No discussion. And then verse 22 here, bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And so these angelic beings here, these elect angels here, are there to do the will of God. And they meet Lot at the gate. They know exactly where to go. They know exactly where to find him. And Lot recognizes him. He, he notices something uniquely different about him. Just as Abraham in the, in the Oaks of Mamre in chapter 18 recognized there was something unique about these men. And he immediately uh, is, is full of hospitality and, and reverence to them. Here we see Lot do the very same thing. These are unique beings. And he recognizes that. God is powerful. Notice as we work our way through different aspects of this text, there's going to be a discussion here in the next couple of verses and about where they're going to spend the night. Lot, is, uh, he is very much aware of his city that he lives in. And so they say they're going to spend the night in the square. Verse 3, there's a strong urging by Lot to get them to come to his house. And, and in the end, he wins that over. But God is powerful and he hates sin. And so... When we get to verse 6, we begin to see Lot dealing with these wicked men. In verse 4, that says, the, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. This is, this is a wicked place. But Lot went out the door at him and shut the door behind him. And look at verse 7. And said, now look at his words here. Please, my brothers. This is not in a, in a relation, religious relation on the brothers. And then he says this. Do not act wickedly. Now, wickedness, it isn't hard to diagram this a little bit and say, wickedness is linked to the desires that these men had. This is why the church still at least our church, I hope many others, still believe 
that God made roles for men and women, and we hold to that. And everything else is contrary to what God put and sinful. And so God speaks through his, and though he's speaking through Lot here, he tells us that these acts are wicked, and he hates sin. Now, our job is we're not God. We're not those who go in and can call down rain and a thunder upon people, as Apostle John wanted to do at one time. In fact, we love sinners, but we hate their sin. That's our job. But God is the one who establishes what is sin and what is not. That's not man's job. Only a holy one, one absent of sin, can establish such a statement. And so we trust him. And it's interesting, and for society, for many, for most of society, it has been a problem. It is is looked at as something has been wrong, and today that has changed. But here's God's view. Don't do, don't act wickedly. And so God hates sin. We see that. Look at 18, chapter 18, verse 20. Just back in the middle of the conversation that was going on here. Because I want to prove that though Lot said that, this is, this is what God believes. Look at verse 20 of chapter 18. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And look at this. And their sin is exceedingly grave. It's God's word, not mine. I mean, I have my sins that I like to protect. We all do, right? We call them little lesser sins, right? And I got to deal with the Bible on those as well, right? Sin is sin to God. But here it's a clear statement that relationships outside of man and woman, married, given by God to each other, is a sinful relationships. In, 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 when done in immorality. Now, go back to our text. Verse 10 and 11. It gets bad because they begin to try to attack a lot. He says, don't do these things. And they start complaining in verse 9. We'll come back to that in a minute. But verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. These are the angels now here. Brought Lot back into the house and shut the door. So this mob is pressing in on Lot. It's out of control. Um, Probably no one's going to have the strength to do this. But these angels reach out, pull them in, and then look what they do. This is what God enables them to do. They struck the men who were in the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, meaning rich, poor, uh, high stature in society or low stature, doesn't matter. He struck them all so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. And God just does things. Boom. We're going to put an end to this right now. God empowers these angels to do amazing things. Look at 12 and 13. And the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? Lot begins to tell him, I have son-in-laws. And sons and your daughters and whom you have in the city, bring them out of this place. So these men are saying, look, get these people, get them out of here. Verse 13, for we are about to destroy this place. Isn't that interesting? Angels have a charge from God. You are going to go destroy this place. It's actually, we'll see in a minute, the Lord sends it. But they're very much involved with this. Because the outcry, middle of 13, has become so great before the Lord... And remember, I've talked about this 
little prepositional phrase before, before the Lord. It means it's literally in his face, and that's who God is. All things are before him. He, he doesn't, he's not bound by time. So everything that happens in society, everything that happens in our lives, everything that goes on is always before um, this omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God. It's all right in his face. In fact, often he uses a word that says it's before his face in the Hebrew. So he's seeing all this stuff. And the Bible says so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. See the power that God has. I mean, he is a patient God, isn't he? And we think of the things that are going on within our own country and how patient God is. And yet there is a point where he will no longer allow his patience to remain. So verses 12 and 13, there's this warning of this great destruction that's coming. It's time to get the family out. Drop down to verse 19 with me. Now behold, your servants have found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness. This is Lot speaking. Look, you've, you've, you've done this. You've got us out. And we're, we'll come back to these, some of these passages we're skipping around here. Um, you've magnified your loving kindness. Lot recognizes the loving kindness of the Lord here, of what God is doing. And notice, which you have shown me by saving my life. Have you seen that in a text? The verse says, you have shown loving kind to, kindness to me by saving my life. Who else can save your life but God? This is the power of God to take a man that... There's nothing in the Old Testament that tells us that Lot was a righteous man. We're going to see what the New Testament says in a minute. But there's nothing here that tells us. And yet God... God, through his loving kindness, saves a man who made poor choices for his family and ends up in a dismal spot. He has the power, through his loving kindness, to save life. Verse 24, again, we're looking at the power of God. Verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The word brimstone is a, is a word for mineral. Um, it's a similar word tied to the salt that his wife looks back and turns to. So he rains this. It's like a blowtorch. In fact, it's so powerful. Verse 27, Abraham arose early in the morning and went out to the place where he had stood before. The Lord showed him um, how to look at all of what God was going to give him to the east, the west, north, and south. He's standing in the same spot. He looks down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, the same place him and Lot looked at and said, which one do you want to go? The same spot, probably. He looks down. Notice what he sees here. Notice the power of God, what he did in a moment. Towards all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. He blowtorched this baby. In fact, look on with me just a little further. Um, verse 25. Go back. He and he overthrew those cities, all of the valley, all of the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. That's pretty much everything. <laughs> There's nothing left. And no wonder archaeologists haven't been able to find these places. He burned them into the dirt. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever burned fields. I've had the privilege of burning fields up. We brought some pretty virgin land and farms and stuff. 
And um, my neighbors, remember my ranch uh, farming neighbors said, don't get that fire too hot. You'll burn that ground so hot that nothing will grow there for years. I didn't really know you could do that. And guess what I did? Got a fire too hot. <laughs> Scared the tar out of me. You know, because those things get away, they hand you a bill. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I did. There was parts of my land I had a long time before I could actually get it to grow again. We burned the soil so hot. And I think that's the imagery here of the power of God to send down this brimstone onto the ground. Now, there is one other place that this is mentioned. Um, look with me at Luke chapter 17, because Jesus actually brings this up. Luke chapter 17, verse 28 and 29. This would be the second coming of Christ. We would believe this would be after the millennial reign of Christ. He would come, pull his church out, begin to establish a millennial reign on the earth. And at the end of this, he comes back and begins to judge. And here the Bible teaches, it was on the, it, verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. So verse 27, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're being given in marriage until the day of Noah entered into the ark and the flood came upon the earth. He's showing his power. Jesus is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. And it was the same way in the days of Lot. The same things that were happening in Noah's day were happening in Lot's days, particularly in Sodom and Gomorrah and these other three cities. And they were eating and drinking and they were buying and they were selling and they were planting and they were building. It seems like a normal life, wasn't it? And then, verse 29, but on that day, isn't that interesting? It's not a guess about, well, somewhere around there it happened. But on that day, because God remembers these things, doesn't he? On that day, when out from Sodom it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, verse 30, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Whew. So here we see... That God relates to this story, not in a very special way, certainly the Lord Jesus here, but in a way of judgment. And then verse 29, back in our text, thus it came about when God destroyed the cities and the valleys that God remembered Abraham, and now I want you to see some of the words here, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. There's some, there's some important wording there. He remembers Abraham... Lot, he's got to go and get him out of there. There's a difference in the way Abraham and Lot have related to God. Now, number two, man is inherently sinful, which usually results in death. Lot chooses, and we know this, because he chooses to take his family into a place that's desperate and, and sinful, right? Look with me back at Genesis chapter 13. You remember this part of the, the account. Abraham has been promised by God that he's going to be this great nation. He's been shown, as far as your eye can see, all this land will be yours. This will be a land that I will give to your people. 
And so their herds are getting too much, right? And there's a herdsman war, right? And that if you don't have enough grass and enough water, you get problems with people who have uh, livestock. And so they got to split up. And so Abraham says, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot, your choice. Nowhere in the text do we say, oh, uncle, no, you know, I'm the younger one. You have more people. You should, I should prefer you over. You didn't do that. Lot lifted up his eyes, verse 10, and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. I mean, you know, it's probably a good choice if, for cattle, but there's no concern with his uncle here that really has rescued him um, and will rescue him again in chapter 14. This was like, like the, uh, was like before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, thus separated each other. And then, just a little farther, Abraham settled in, the land, settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents, that would be his family, as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wickedly, wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. So he made a choice to take his family somewhere that would put them in a place that was going to be a difficult way to raise your family. This is a, this is a choice he made. Now, chapter 14, verse 12, Abraham must rescue Lot. Because you know what happens when you get in wicked places? There's a lot of fighting that goes on. <laughs> I've had dear friends through the years in ministry that have been detectives and all kinds of things. And, and I've asked them sometimes, I said, what's, what's the most difficult crime scene you've ever been on? And it said, when immorality is at its height, we find the most difficult scenes to walk in on. There's constant theft, fighting, murder. The worst things come with immorality. And of course, we know in chapter 14, they're, they're pillaging each other and all kinds of problems are happening. Lot gets caught up in this, gets taken away, and, and Abraham has to go after him. And so... So this is man, he's inherently sinful, and it usually results in death. Lot apparently does not seek his uncle's counsel anywhere in this. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, why wouldn't you say, Uncle Abraham, clearly God has been speaking to you. He has shared the future with you in a way that you're going to have the seed and this land's going to be you. Wouldn't you say, Abraham, what do you think I should do? Don't you think a young man should ask for counsel on that? But nowhere in the text do we find that. And so he leads himself into those things that he sees best for himself without counsel. And even when he has opportunities to, to say, Hey, Uncle Abraham, after the whole thing in chapter 14, I don't think I'm going to go back. Can I hang out with you? That doesn't happen. He seems to return right back to where he was. Now, notice back in verse 8. I'm kind of picking this text apart a little bit. Verse 8. These wicked men have pressed in lot against the door. They want to do godless things to these angels that they don't know are angels. Um, and he's pressed in against. And, and then things come out a lot that are very difficult. Look at verse 8. Now behold, after he says, don't do this wickedness... I have two daughters who have, who have not had relations with any man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men. 
And as much as they have come under my shelter, under my roof. Now, Lot seeks to protect these angels who need no protection at all. And he fails to protect the girls who need protection. You see how when you, when you disobey God, how difficult it is to understand things at times? Right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right. You get sideways in your thinking. I mean, as dads, when we read this passage, does not your fur kind of go... <laughs> it's disgusting, isn't it? Verse 9 but they said, stand aside. You want to see the wickedness of man that leads to death? <laughs> stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one, he's speaking of, now they're mad at him. They're going, this one came to us as an alien. He's not from us. He's not part of us. Right? And already is acting like a judge. Remember where the angels met him? He was sitting in the gate. That's where the judges and the elders sit. He is so... They, whether this is true or not, that's where we find Lot. He's sitting in the gate... So maybe he worked himself in, I don't know if they voted him in, or he just said, hey, I'm going to sit here and make decisions for people, or whatever it is. They're not happy with this now. You didn't belong to us. You've made yourself, and you're acting like a judge, middle of nine. Now we will treat you worse than them. I don't want to begin to think what that was. <laughs> so they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door down. And of course, that's when the angels say that's enough, and they pull them in. Notice verse 14. Remember, we're thinking about sin and leads to death here. The sinfulness of men. Verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were to be married to his daughters. This is supposed to be a neat thing, right? He says, up, get up out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-laws as jesting or laughing. They think it's a joke. So you begin to understand that there are consequences of his family now that are being flushed out, his extended family. And if, and if they're engaged, they're in this betrothal period of, of the ancient world might have been in. So they were already men picked out for the daughters. So there's a family relationship there. And there's, this is doubtlessly lack of trusting God in areas and, and talking about God. And so this is just a big joke. Oh yeah, God's going to wipe this place out. Father-in-law's lost it. And so there's consequences when we don't obey God. 15 and 16 seems very slow to obey God, right? When the, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. I mean, these are men sent from God, angels, elect angels sent from God, saying, up, take your wife, get up, let's go, and your daughters who are here. They know none of these other guys are going. They know the will of God. They know what's going to happen. Or will you be swept away in the punishment of the city? Look at verse 16. But he hesitated. See, slow obedience. One of the times we worked on, and you know, with our boys when they were little, was we, we'd tell the boys, God loves first-time obedience. And you may not even agree with mom and dad, but go obey, then we'll discuss. Because God loves first-time obedience. And it often will save your life, son, when we say stop and you don't and a car hits you. <laughs> but there's a hesitation here. Notice he hesitates. And what happens? So the men seize him by the hand. They're not messing around. You don't know what's coming. 
There's no getting away from this. Anything close to this dies. This is total destruction here. And so they seize his hand, the hand of his wife, the hands of his two daughters. And look at the middle of this phrase here. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And when they brought them outside the city, one said, escape for your life. Here's a command. Do not look behind you. And do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. Here we go again, verse 18. But Lot said, oh no. (laughs) Oh no. I got a different idea, God. (laughs) Anybody ever said that? (laughs) I got a different idea. And one of the things about sin is it brings fear into your life. You know that? If you struggle with fear... I'm, I'm not pointing anything, but it's something you've got to look at. Because one of, the, one of the consequences of sin left in our life, unchecked, undealt with, it'll bring fear. It just does. And that brings anxiety, depression, all those things that everybody's trying to get solved in their life. And so you can see this come out of him here. He says, oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. Look, I, I, I seem to be doing good here. And, and, and you have magnified your loving kindness in which you have shown to save my life, but I can't escape to the mountains. For the disaster will overtake me and I will die. For some reason, he's greatly afraid that he's going to die there. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. And he's almost in a question. I think it is small enough that my life might be saved. And the graciousness of God... And he says to him, behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you spoke. And so Zor is is spared because of this fear that Lot has. Now, there's hard consequences that come. Sin always brings these. Look at verse 26. By this time... Everybody's lost, all his son-in-laws or future son-in-laws and sons that seem to be back there. They're moving away from the city, but his wife from behind him, so she's trailing behind him. Um, And clearly this is inspiration because I don't think Lot looked back. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Very similar words to this brimstone type thing. Um, In reality, the same thing that happened to the people there happens to her. It's supernatural. I know there's lots of people that joke at supernatural things within the Bible, but God said it. I believe it. hope you do. What a consequence. Didn't seek counsel. Sought to please himself. Did not think of others. And he's lost everything. He's lost everything. All his wealth, everything he owned is gone. Unless he's got sheep grazing somewhere outside of the range of the, of the fire and brimstone. He's lost everything here. John said, do not love the world nor the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. It's, it isn't hard. You've heard this story before. Something in that woman caused her to look back. And you say, man, I, um, you know, it's, it's hard. To, it's a narrative. We don't want to go too deep on it. But she's got... She's got her sons back there, future son-in-laws back there, nephews, nieces, all of that huge realm that went with Lot there, his tents and all of that. They're all gone. 
And yet, the Bible uses her an example as one who loves the things of the world. And the world is passing away, and that's exactly what's going to happen to the world. I mean, often we've been told, be careful to hold on to things of this world, because someday they're going to burn up. And yet we hold so tightly to things. Peter reminds us of this. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly desires. And listen to this phrase, which wage war against your soul. Does not mean that God does not bless individuals, some with wealth, Christians with wealth, some with, you know, a medium income, some with more or less than, than that. But everybody has the ability to love the things of the world, to hang on to things that really are not part of who we are. We're aliens and strangers. It means this is not our home. And then we get to chapter, end of, end of chapter 19 down to 30 through 38. And there's a complete moral collapse here in the family. Look at this, verse 30. Lot went up from Zor. And he stayed in the mountains. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought he was going to Zor and he didn't want to go to the mountains. Well, he ends up exactly where the angels told him to go. The Bible doesn't tell us why he did this. Perhaps um, he got to Zor and he was afraid of those people. Um, perhaps he thought God was, he saw what God did. And he, maybe he said, we can't stay here because he said he's going to take out these five cities. And, and he was smart enough to say, let's go. Um, but for whatever reason, he ends up in the mountains. And here he is with his two daughters. For he was afraid to stay in Zor. And he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. This is the last thing we hear in the Old Testament about Lot. So just listen. First born said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth. In their mind, everyone's dead. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting uh, thought. There's no one left. Everybody's been destroyed. Come into us after this manner of earth. No one's here to come to us. So come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may Preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and laid with her father. And he did not know when she laid down or when she arose. And on the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I laid last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight. Also, then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and laid with him, and he did not know when she laid down and when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn, a son, and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabs to this day. As the, for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Um, Ami, it's from the nation of Ammon. And his father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Now, when you start to think about this, um, the Moabs and Ammon, uh, Ammonites, they fight against Israel till they go to captivity. There is just constant problems with them. It gets so bad that they take on the gods of Moab and Am Ammonites and um, one of the chief gods, or the chief god of the Moabs, was uh, Keshmas. And Solomon, in 1 Kings 11 through 14, somewhere in there, builds a high place to him. 
because of all of his wives. And Moloch was the god of the Ammonites, and he builds a high place to them. This thing has now infested there. They fight them forever. The Bible tells you, remember when Uriah gets killed? Because David put him in front and then pulled everybody back. You know who killed him? The sword of the Ammonites. Go back and read it. Uriah dies. The faithful one, David's unfaithful, the faithful one dies at the hands of the swords of the Ammonites. It's all coming from this chapter right here. You don't think sin lives on when not dealt with? It's disastrous. To this day, the Arab hatred that has its root here still is there. Now, that's a pretty tough passage, isn't it? Where's God in all this? Well, God has, number three, God has a redemptive plan that cannot be stopped. God's grace and redemptive plan are interweaved throughout this text. They really are. Chapter 18, verse 16, turn back just a little bit. We see the graciousness of God working with Abraham. God is very gracious here. The probably pre-incarnate Christ, this theophany. The men have left. They're headed for Sodom. These are the two angels we see in chapter 19, verse 1. And Abraham and and this pre-incarnate Christ begin to have this conversation, right? And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? God is gracious. He didn't owe Abraham an example, but he said, look, shall I hide this from this one I'm going to build this great nation with? We see the graciousness of God with his elect all the time. When you go back to chapter 19, verse 1, we, we see the angels head straight for Lot. They didn't head for anyone else. They didn't say, hey, there's somebody else we need to get out of there. They head right for Lot. The one who chose did not, re, um, did not get counsel from his, his, his uncle. The one that probably is a little more on the selfish side, these angels head right for Lot. Verses 10 and 11, it's clear that these angels rescue Lot in a very, very wicked situation. They said they were going to do things worse to him than they were going to do the other men. They probably would have left Lot dead. God rescues him out of that situation, pulls him right, pull, they pull him right back in the door. They cause blindness, put it into all that nonsense. Just absolute graciousness here to Lot. Verses 12 and 14, we see the patience of God with Lot here. He allows him to pursue his family. Notice in verse 12, uh, they said, well, who do you have? And well, you know, he, they know that these guys are not coming, but they allow him to go back. He goes, I have a son-in-law, I have sons and daughters. Whoever's in your city, bring them out. And, and so he goes and tries to get them to come. And yet they don't, but it's gracious of God. 19, uh, excuse me, verse 16, there's a hesitancy on Lot's. And, and those angels grab his hand and they go with him. You know Why? Because Lot's going to mess around and there's going to be a problem. <laughs> Sometimes God just drags us out of situations for our own good. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Uh, you didn't leave me in that situation. Because I'm dumb enough to get myself in a lot of trouble. So he sees them. So we see the grace of God. Verse 19. 
It's, he even says, this is Lot speaking, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. What, what some commentators said is, Lot may have seen these men as the same as what Abraham experienced, where God showed up and blessed him. And he may have been looking at these men as, wow, if I work these guys enough, I may get a blessing like my uncle did. It's a thought. And so he, look what he does. He, he, he recites things that are incredible and they're very true. And you have magnified your loving kindness. Now, it isn't the angels. The angels are doing what God sent them to do. So this is really directed to God. You've magnified your loving kindness. It's not just loving kindness. It's magnified and he sees it and yet he's still hesitant to obey fully. I mean, I thought about that. There's times where you and I can see the magnitude and glory of God and yet hesitate. Oh, heavens, we should not do that. And then he makes a statement in the middle of 19, which you have shown me by saving my life. But, <laughs> I had a friend who always said, yeah, but, yeah, but. I said, is that close to a rabbit or what? Because he always wanted to argue with you. Yeah, but, yeah, but. Well, here's a lot. But, <laughs> I can't escape into the mountains. I'm a valley guy. <laughs> I don't know what he's thinking here, but he doesn't want to go there. He's afraid. After he admits that God has shown this magnified loving kindness to him, he has saved his life, and in the end he says, I, don't want to, I, I, I can't give you full obedience here. And yet God says, okay, we'll set Zor apart. In the end he does into the mountains. So God always gives us clear instruction about sin and he always rescues his own and and what's interesting in this passage if you were to study this passage and you had to make a decision whether lot was saved or not probably where would you end up be difficult to say oh wow yeah there's a lot of fruit there but but yet here's god rescuing him there's something about lot that god wants and he's rescuing him and he saves him from utter destruction, utter wipeout, you know, eternal death type of Sodom and Gomorrah, rain and fire and brimstone and all that. He saves him from that. It's a very, very much a picture of hell, isn't it? And even in the immorality of verses 30 through 38, God is using that situation to preserve his seed in Abraham. And you go, well, how is that? Well, it isn't hard. We don't, I'm out of time, but Deuteronomy chapter 2, 19, 9 through 19, somewhere right in there. Um, when Moses is giving the final instructions to go into the land, he says, do not mess with Moab and Ammon. Do not wipe them out. God is speaking through Moses. He's recording this. Don't wipe them out. And that's pretty important. Because guess who comes out of Moab? A woman named Ruth. Who, who, her and Boaz give birth to a man named Obed. Who gives birth to a man named Jesse. Who gives birth to a man named David. <laughs> Out of wicked incestuous relationship comes these nations that has the seed of our Savior in them. <laughs> Is not God like, whoo? I mean, we wouldn't do that, would we? I followed one more down. I knew there was something, and I followed a guy named Sobi, 
who was one of David's faithful men toward the very end of his life, when he has to flee from his son um, who's trying to kill him and his, all the men that jumped sides on that, there was a man named Sobi, and he was a son of Ammon who protected David in his final days. Isn't that interesting? All coming out of this. Now, we've got to close, but we're going to end with 2 Peter chapter 2 because God says something earth-shaking, and it actually speaks about us and how God knows us and establishes us in his righteousness. Because there's only two places Lot's mentioned in the New Testament, and that's when Jesus speaks of the coming destruction that the Lord is going to bring upon the world in his second coming in this text. Other than that, everything else with Lot in the Old Testament is all about his offspring, Moab and Ammon, and all of their wars and all of the problems between that. That's all we have. But notice in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, Peter's final letter, he dies probably shortly after this, he's martyred. But he's warning of false prophets. And he warns that they come during times of wickedness. And so he starts to speak of Noah's days, verse 4. That he did not spare even these angels. These are the fallen angels when they sinned. And these are the ones we see in Genesis chapter 6. And this possession of people and all the things that were going on in there that we associate with a Nephilim. And he commits them to hell and uh, them to these pits of darkness and reserve there. And he's keeping them there. He did not spare the ancient world, right? He wiped out the world. Eight people got on the ark. Someone after Sunday's sermon said to me, they said, man, when you look at that, you begin to realize three soils are bad, only one good soil. And maybe, is it, they asked me this question, is most people's souls in those other soils? And I said only eight people got on the ark. I mean, we go down through, after Jesus' ministry, the most amazing thing this world has ever seen, there's only 120 people. But predominantly, the world is lost. And so, here he doesn't spare the ancient world, but he preserves Noah, the preacher of righteousness with seven others. And when he brought about the flood on the earth to the ungodly, verse 6, and here we go. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, all right, now he's brought this in. He's using, he's using what happens to man. If you let man go unchecked, this is where things go. To destruction by reducing them to ashes. You ever mess around with asses? All you have to do is blow on them and they go. Having made them an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter. Sodom and Gomorrah should still be a lesson to why and how, excuse me, how God deals with sin and what he thinks about that sin. It should scare us a little bit. He doesn't put up with this. But look at verse 7. And if he rescued, are you ready for this word? Righteous Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by these lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now that's a difficult verse. Because we haven't read anything in chapter 19 that says he's righteous, have we? He does the same thing with Sarah in the first epistle, doesn't he? 
He does not remember Sarah laughing at the very words of probably the pre-incarnate Christ in 18. He remembers Sarah as a righteous, holy woman of old, as an example for women today. I think she gave her handmaiden to Abraham. She laughs in a, in a, in a very, uh, as we looked at that word last week, it is not a good laugh at the words of the Lord. And yet the Bible sees those are God's in a righteous standing. Now, I wouldn't dare try to play with Lot and say, well, I think I'm going to go live a wicked life because I'm righteous in my position. I think what God gives us is a desire by the Spirit of God to live righteously. It's one of the things he, he gives us security in that way that there's a desire for Him. But it amazes me as we look at this and He says, there is this righteous one. And He felt His righteous soul torment. So there's something about that. There's a little more here given that Lot wasn't as bad as we think He is. He was righteous, but yet... There were choices that he made that, that God had to save him out of. And so there's a lot of hope there. I'm way over time, but I just think about some practical implications about this. Some of you may have children or family members that are stuck in deep, dark sin or made bad choices. God can get them out. Or maybe they're in a situation and they're trying to live righteously in a place that's difficult. God can get them through that. So there's great hope and and he, he saves his own. And though Lot does not seem to be the standard that we would want to set in our lives, the Lord knows who's are his. And he rescues. He rescues. And it is just the pure grace of God when you study this. That seed has been protected. He's established nations, even though he's not, he is not at all responsible for the sin of Lot and his daughters, but he uses that to bring that around. And you go, well, are you sure? Yeah, he did it with Rahab. He took a harlot out of Jericho, and she ends up with the line of Jesus. <laughs> he, he does this. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But we should keep trying to learn them <laughs> each and every time. So here we understand that there's a personal righteousness, and we have to understand this text. He is not righteous because of his things he did. In any shape or form, you are not righteous because you're at church, because you said a prayer and walked an aisle or did whatever you did. You are not righteous because of that. You are righteous because God made you righteous through his son, period. And anything that comes from that is his doing as well. That's why we're righteous. And you know the verse in Romans, and I promise I'll quit with this. You know the verse in Romans says there's none righteous, and there's none not one, there's none that does good. You know where that comes from? It's an Old Testament text. Psalms. 14, 1 through 4. You can go back and read it. So you can't say that Abraham and Noah and, and Lot here were righteous and God accepted their righteousness in order for them to be saved. He made them righteous. <laughs> they are his elect. They're ones he chooses for whatever reason. And some of his choices we go, oh, are you sure about that one? <laughs> yeah. Don't look in the mirror too close. Because I saved you, Scott. <laughs> and if I'd have left you no telling where you would end up. But I pulled you out of that. And so, praise God. Now, just close with this. Praise God, he does not count our sins against us. Psalms 130, says, 130 verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, what? Who could stand? 
who could stand. And so ashes out of beauty. Excuse me, beauty out of ashes. Because <laughs> it was ashes, wasn't it, man? That thing is gone. And out of that comes the protected seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And someday he's going to hang on a cross and think about that. His blood would wash back and cover the sins of Lot. Isn't that amazing? That's how sufficient Christ is. Let's put our hope in him. Father, thank you for a lesson that is a little bit hard to read, Lord. In fact, in our day, as you know, Lord, uh, this behavior is widely accepted. And yet you call it wicked. You see it. You even come down from heaven to see this with your own eyes, in a sense, to look upon it. You are watching it. You are marking it. You know it, and you will judge it. But God, we're thankful that you're the judge and we're not. We carry the gospel. Because you love to rescue murderers like Paul. Liars like us. Selfish people like us. You love to rescue us, us sinners that don't deserve it, Lord. And you love to stamp us with your glory and make us righteous. It brings you great glory, Lord. So... I know these dear brothers and sisters here, Lord. I speak for them, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for electing us, knowing us, calling us to yourself. Though we don't fully know how you do that, but we trust you and we believe you. Thank you for coming, rescuing us out of this fire and brimstone we deserved. We give you praise and glory for that, Lord. May that stir us to walk for you tomorrow. Whatever job or home, wherever uh, our, this dear family, church family goes, Lord, may we remember the graciousness of our God. And may that spur us on to live for you. Lord, thank you for letting us talk about you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.